And he went up on the mountain, speaking of Jesus, and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So the title of this message is 12 Unremarkable Men, One Matchless God. So let me read to you a made-up letter written from a company called Jordan Management Consultants. And this letter is written out to Jesus. Okay, this is made up. To Jesus, son of Joseph, dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has, had been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. So what does this letter tell us? It tells us that by worldly standards, the 12 men were unfit, unqualified, and incompetent. However, what we'll learn tonight is that God used unremarkable men to change the world. In fact, the work that they began continues on today. They're living proof that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. And in and of themselves, they were clearly not sufficient for the task, but God led them and used them to make a lasting impact. So some questions to consider. What was the secret to their success? And how can you be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? So 
So in our passage tonight, we're going to see Jesus's power demonstrated in the appointing of the 12 so that you will learn the heart of discipleship and God's means to working through his people to impact the world. And if you're taking notes, two, two points. Number one, the function of the 12 in verses 13 to 15. And number two, the identity of the 12, verses 16 through 19. So first, the function of the 12. What were they to do? So we see at this time in Jesus's ministry, he's well known, he's very popular. Massive crowds are following him. Some genuine followers, but most of the crowd we know was simply amazed at his wonder-working ability and his wonder-working power. And that's as far as their amazement went. The hype was related to his works, not his words or who he was. And last time we learned that people flocked to Jesus from near and far. Some saw the actual miracles he was performing and some heard about all that he was doing. And they traveled great distances to be healed of their diseases for they knew Jesus had the power to help their physical suffering. Yet they missed the fact of who he was. They missed the fact of who was before them, the Messiah, the, the very son of God. They came so close, yet they were so far. They came to be healed, not to be saved. They only cared about what Jesus could do for them rather than what he could offer to them, namely forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and entry into the kingdom of God. And as Jesus was wildly popular with the crowds, he was surprisingly unpopular with the religious leaders. For much of chapter two, Jesus has been in opposition with the Pharisees and the scribes. And that all came to a climax in chapter three, verse six, where the Pharisees and the Herodians team up together to see how they might destroy Jesus. And here we get a sense of the hatred they had for, for Jesus. Two opposing groups who would never work together joined forces for the united purpose of finding a way to get rid of Jesus. In other words, they were thirsty for blood. They wanted to kill Jesus. And when we take a step back and look at Jesus's ministry thus far, it might look like it's been a failure. Jesus has a target on his back. The crowds love him, but they don't understand who he really is. The religious leaders have been anticipating a Messiah, but Jesus doesn't match their idea of a Messiah. They also don't understand who Jesus really is. However, the unclean spirits, the demons, they do know who Jesus is. They recognize Jesus as the son of God. So you can hardly call Jesus's ministry successful so far. And we know his ministry, earthly ministry lasted for three years. At this point, it's likely half over already. So with 18 or so months remaining before his death, what is Jesus going to do? He's gonna shift his ministry from the massive crowds to a distinct group of men. Look at verse 13. Jesus goes up on the mountain. In Luke's account, we're told that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God in Luke 6, 12. So we're told that Jesus prayed all night. This is the night before he would choose or appoint the 12. Now, some of you may have pulled an all-nighter studying for an exam or a test before. 
But we know when it comes to studying, not all of that time is spent studying, right? There's peak times and there's times where we just zone out and hours go by and we have nothing to show for it. Meaning that all night study sessions are usually not all night study sessions. We get hungry, so we grab a snack. We get bored, so we go on YouTube. We get tired, so we do take a quick nap. But this wasn't the case for Jesus. When Jesus spent all night in prayer, the word there used speaks of enduring a task through the night. It has a sense of toiling through the night, staying at a task all night. So Jesus remained awake through the dark hours until morning, persevering all, of, all that time in prayer because of the importance of what he was about to do. Now we're not told what Jesus was praying for, but we know that Jesus was all-knowing. So most likely he wasn't praying for who he should choose. Rather, he was praying for the men he would soon appoint as apostles. So after all night of prayer, Jesus called to himself those whom he desired, and they came to him. Jesus, on the mountain, large numbers of people following him, and out of that large group, Jesus called the 12 that he wanted. He summoned those whom he willed. So this wasn't a raise your hand and I'll call on you moment. Jesus wasn't allowing anyone to offer themselves to him. He wasn't looking for volunteers. People weren't handing in resumes looking for a job. Quite the opposite. Jesus calls. He summons. He acts in his own sovereign interest. In other words, the decision of the 12 was his initiative and it was determined by his will. In John 15, 16, we're told Jesus' words, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So this is, how, this is also how it worked when Jesus called the first four disciples. If you remember in Mark chapter one, verses 16 to 20, Jesus there calls disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And in, the, in that account, Jesus called, and immediately they follow him. From a human perspective, it might seem like the disciples were the ones that chose to follow Christ, but Jesus' call supersedes their wills or their choice of him. So they chose him only after he first had chosen them. That was a call to be disciples, but here in our passage, we see a call to be apostles. Those are two different things. So back to verse 13. Jesus calls whom he desires, and what's the result of that? We're told that they came to him. Another way to put it is, they went off, which implies that they separated themselves from the larger crowd, and they, they made a definite leave from the uncommitted crowd to take their stand with Jesus. And Jesus is going to appoint the 12 as apostles, and he's going to lay out the their discipleship plan. The word appoint literally means to make. So it's the same word that we find in Genesis 1-1 where it says, in the beginning God created or God made the heavens and the earth. So if that's true, then the question for us as Christ's disciples isn't what can we be on our own, but what can Jesus make of us as, as his disciples? Jesus made 12 if you will. By a, by a definite act of his will, 
he created a distinct group composed of 12 men. Now, you're, if you're a good Bible study student, you would probably ask the question, why 12? Why not 13 or why not five? Why, why not 25? So why did Jesus appoint exactly 12 and no more or, and no less? The number 12 recalls the 12 tribes of Israel. So during Jesus's day, Israel was apostate. Judaism was corrupt as seen in the self-righteousness of the religious leaders and their works-based religion as, as we've been learning about. Hypocrisy, man-made regulations, meaningless ceremonies, legalism, those are words that describe the religion in the first century. So with Christ choosing the 12 apostles, he was, he was in effect appointing new leadership for the new covenant. And we need to remember, Jesus was massively rejected by the religious leaders. The people of Israel misunderstood him. They couldn't be used by Christ and they wouldn't be used by Christ. So Jesus is gonna form a new community by calling the 12. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says this, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So as you can see, the 12 apostles will one day sit in judgment over Israel. So the number 12 was, was significant. Another example of this significance of 12 is that we know after, Jesus, after Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ, it left only 11 disciples or 11 apostles. And in Acts 1, we find that they chose a replacement for Judas. They chose a man by the name of Matthias. So it wasn't, 11 wasn't good enough. They, it had to be 12. So there again, you see the importance of having 12. Now, when we get to verse 14, we see what they were to do. What were these men to do? The 12, we know, were both disciples, but they were also apostles. The difference being a disciple meant simply a learner or a student, one who is, who is taught by another. It was broadly used to refer to anyone who believed in Jesus. Apostle, however, refers to a qualified representatives who are sent on a mission. They are they're sent ones. They weren't merely messengers or heralds. They were ambassadors, delegates, official representatives of Christ. So apostle was a distinct office that was necessary for the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 talks about how the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So something important to note that is that there are no apostles today. No apostles today, or can there ever be any more apostles? Outside of the apostle Paul, and his unique and distinct call, which was in no way normal or can be replicated, three things had to be true of an apostle. First, according to Acts 1.22, apostles had to be eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They had to be there at Jesus' resurrection. Second, apostles had to be directly appointed by Christ, as we see in, this, in our passage. Christ appointed these 12. And third, apostles had to be able to confirm their message and their mission with miraculous signs. So
So now that we understand a bit more about the office of apostle, we're gonna focus on the function of the 12. What were they to do? And we're gonna look at three things. They were to live and learn, they were to depart and declare, and they were to cast out and confirm. So first, they were to live and learn. Live and learn. There's a story that's told of a virtuoso violinist named Joshua Hayfetz. After a distinguished performing career, he accepted an appointment as professor of music at UCLA. He was asked what had prompted his change of career. He replied, violin playing is a perishable art. It must be passed on as a personal skill, otherwise it is lost. And that's great advice. We need to listen to what he just said. Living the Christian life is a highly personal experience and we can't pull it off merely by watching skilled veterans perform. We need hands-on instruction. And hands-on instruction is exactly what Jesus gives the 12 men he appointed. Mark tells us that the 12 were appointed to be with him. This is key to our understanding of discipleship. Before anything else, discipleship is about relationship. This is foundational. This is priority number one, fellowship with Jesus. It's, all, it's about a who before a what. So discipleship is all about being with him. That's the essence of Christianity. Everything you and I do flows out of our relationship with Jesus. Often, we think following Jesus means we need to go out and do something but it's first and foremost about being with him. So before being spent for Christ, we need to spend time with Christ. Before doing things for Christ, we need to draw near to Christ. And these 12 men, they needed to be taught and trained. They needed to spend intentional time with Christ. And they would need to live and learn from their master. With, a, with about a year and a half left before Jesus' death, these men, they needed to be prepared for life after Jesus. This was a crucial time. He was gonna show them how to live, how to suffer, how to die, and he was gonna share his life with them. He was gonna involve them with himself. The 12, like all of us, we need to be shaped by Jesus, and he was gonna train them to carry on the ministry after he's gone. So the most important lesson for these 12 men are that they need to be with Jesus. So it's not about who they were, it's about what Christ can make of them. It's not about their accolades or accomplishments, it's who they've been with and who they know. And the same goes for you. Everything flows out of your relationship with Jesus. This is how real progress is made in the Christian life. Spending time with Jesus in fellowship through his word and prayer. And apart from that, growth simply doesn't happen. It's not who you are, it's who you've been with and who you know. So be in close communion with Christ, abide in him, remain in him, study him, imitate him, walk in his steps. Like Mary, daily sit at Jesus' feet and hear his word. So to boil it down in one sentence is spend time with Christ. So the questions for you 
are how are you doing in that area are you showing your commitment to christ by cultivating a relationship with him how is your devotion to the lord do you have a desire to grow it all begins by being with him and everything else follows you want to be a fisher of men do you want to be the salt of the earth do you want to be the light of the world then be much with christ before we can do work for christ we need to spend time getting to know him so first live and learn second depart and declare depart and declare the second function listed for the 12 is found again look in verse 14 the 12 were appointed to be with him and that that he might send them out to preach so before they could be sent out they needed to be prepared by christ himself now the 12 actually won't be sent out until later on not until chapter 6. they need to live with him learn from him then they would be ready to go out and serve under his authority they would be prepared to depart and declare the gospel and what were they sent out to do they were sent out to preach they were to preach what jesus taught they were to proclaim jesus's message which we know is summed up in mark 1:15. the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe in the gospel so they were to put before the people the message of the kingdom the good news of salvation through jesus christ they were to make known like we're all to make known the saving activity of god in christ so if you don't know jesus christ i put before you the same message repent and believe in the gospel you need to be saved and the only way is through belief in christ what you have no ability to, to do christ has done it for you and you can pay for your sins or you can trust christ who can forgive sins the choice is yours you can continue to reject christ or you can come to christ and how you respond is a matter of life and death so the 12 we know weren't to preach what they thought and what they felt but they were to preach what they've seen and what they've heard they've been with jesus and heard what he said and they were to to teach what christ taught so the application is easy here preach the gospel of jesus christ to those that don't know him if you're a recipient of god's grace in salvation don't keep it to yourself don't don't you want others to know about christ receivers must be givers we must make it known to others to withhold the message of salvation is like having an antidote to poison and not using it to save someone's life it's like having the cure for cancer and not sharing it with anybody it's like having the solution to sin but staying silent while many perish away possessors of jesus christ must be proclaimers of jesus christ the power is not in the person but it's in the message that's what romans 1 tells us the gospel is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes romans 10 14 how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching 
So how does the gospel spread? Through those who have been saved. That's another reason not to keep the gospel to yourself. We need to spread the gospel news far and wide and compel people to come to Christ. We're not secret agents trying to remain hidden. In Matthew chapter 5, believers are compared to a city on a hill that can't be hidden. The principle there is that since a a city can't be hidden, we can't be hidden either. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So you must speak on Christ's behalf. Third function of the 12 was cast out and confirm. Cast out and confirm. The 12 would be given authority to cast out demons. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 adds more detail to this. Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So the 12 didn't only speak with Christ's authority, they also exercised his authority. They were given the power and authority to cast out demons and to heal diseases for the purpose of confirming their preaching. So by being, by being able to do miracles, it authenticated their claims as apostles of Jesus Christ. And up to this point, we know that only Jesus has been preaching and teaching. Only Jesus has been demonstrating his authority by doing miracles and casting out unclean spirits. But now, Jesus gives the 12 both the power and the right to perform miracles. And to remind you again, this authority to cast out and heal is unique to the apostles. One of the signs of an apostle is that they had to be able to confirm their mission and message with miraculous signs. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. And here, here we have it, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So none of us have this power and authority. The apostles were given a supernatural power to work signs and miracles. And those miracles bore witness to the truth of the gospel, which the apostles had received from Christ and which they introduced on, be, on his behalf to the world. So although we, we can't heal the sick or cast out demons, what we can do is act as a follower of Christ. That means that you must strive to act on Christ's behalf. You must labor to do good in every way. You must live in such a way that people will see Christ in your life. Your conduct and your attitude will confirm your witness and add to your testimony to a world that is against Christ. Some questions to think about. Do you think people would listen to you if you preached the gospel to them, but you did it in an unchristlike manner? How strong would your testimony be if you told people to believe in Jesus Christ, but your life is lived contrary to God's word? Your message and your manner wouldn't match. Your words and your works would be out of balance. So speak the truth in love, stand for the truth. Don't just make Christ known with your words, but show Christ by your loving and gracious actions also. So that's the function of the 12. They were to live and learn, depart and declare, cast out and confirm, 
Next, we'll look at who these 12 men were. What do we know about them and how did God use them for his glory? So the identity of the 12, verses 16 to 19. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Those are the names of the 12 men. There are no backups, no second string, no plan B. If these men failed, there was no do-overs. There was no restarting. None of them were religious experts, none trained in the scriptures, none of them were preachers. They weren't remarkable, they weren't spectacular, they weren't the most gifted. They were unqualified and ordinary. They were common men. And more often than not, we see their lack of faith, their worldly spirit. They were slow to learn, and we find them arguing about who among them is the greatest. We find many of them deserting Christ when he really needed them the most. So it should surprise you then that Jesus would choose these 12 men. What shouldn't surprise you is what God could and would do through these unremarkable men. The 12 were unremarkable men, but they accomplished remarkable things because of their relationship to the incomparable and matchless God. It wasn't their greatness, but the supreme greatness of Jesus Christ and his power through them. He called them, he appointed them apostles, he poured his life into them, he was the content of their preaching, and he gave them authority to heal and cast out demons. And I'll repeat what I mentioned earlier. Discipleship doesn't consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but in what Christ can make of disciples. So now we'll quickly talk about the list that we have here, and I'll mention some things about each of the men. So we find a list of names in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. And the 12 names are always the same, but they're not always in the same order. All 12, except Judas Iscariot, were from Galilee, a town that had really nothing to brag about. The 12 are arranged in three groups of four. The 12 are arranged in three groups of four. Most is known about the first group, and the least is known about the third group. Peter, or Simon, is always mentioned first in every list, and Judas Iscariot is always mentioned last, except in Acts because he wasn't alive at that time. And group one always has Peter first. Group two always has Philip first, and group three always has James, the son of Alphaeus, first. So if you're tracking, that means that the first, fifth, and ninth names in the list are always Peter, Philip, and James, the son of Alphaeus, in that order. And you can think of them as the leaders of the three groups. So first, group one, Peter's group. It's the most known, and they were the closest with Christ. In that group, we find Peter, Andrew, James, and John, two sets of brothers, all of them fishermen. Okay, Simon also goes by Peter, and Andrew, they were brothers. Andrew was the first of all the disciples to be called. We know that from John chapter 1, verses 35 to 40. After Andrew was called, he was responsible for introducing his brother Peter to Christ. 
And tradition has it that Andrew was crucified, just like Christ was. Peter was the outspoken leader of, of the apostles, and he's often found making absolute statements. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, it says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. So the word first there doesn't refer to first in a list or first in order. It speaks of the chief leader of the group. So Peter is the clear leader of the 12. He speaks the most often and is the one most spoken to by Jesus. Also, his name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other name except Jesus. And he's probably most known because he denied Jesus three times. And all the records of early church history indicate that Peter was crucified as well. It's cited that Peter was, that before Peter was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. As he watched her being led to her death, Clement says, Peter called to her by name saying, remember the Lord. When it was Peter's turn to die, he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die as his Lord had died and thus he was nailed to a cross head downward. Next, we have James and John. They were also brothers. They were given the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. That described their personality in very vivid and picturesque terms. They were fervent, zealous, passionate. They were thunderous. However, at times their passion was uncontained and uncontrolled and they acted recklessly. James, we know, was the first of the 12 to be martyred, and his death is recorded in scripture. In Acts 12, verses one and two, we're told about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. So to be killed with a sword doesn't mean that you were stabbed to death. It means that you were beheaded. That's what killed with a sword implies. So his brother, John was the last apostle to live. He died in an old age. He was the only apostle who was an actual eyewitness to Jesus's crucifixion. John is known as the apostle of love. And John went through not only the loss of his brother James, but as one who was the last apostle alive, he also witnessed the martyrdom of all the others. So in a way, John maybe suffered the most, although he wasn't, uh, as the last one living. It's said of John's death that he was so frail in his final days at Ephesus that he had to be carried into the church. One phrase was constantly on his lips, my little children, love one another. Asked why he always said this, he replied, it is the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. So within the first grouping, we also have what is known as the inner circle, Jesus's inner circle his closest companions, Peter, James, and John. They were privileged with unique experiences that the other apostles weren't. They witnessed Jesus's glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. They witnessed the raising of Jairus's daughter from the dead. They were on the Mount of Olives and they also were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's group one. Group two consists as Philip as the leader, along with Bartholomew, who also goes by Nathaniel, Matthew, who's also known as Levi, the tax collector, and Thomas, also known 
by some as doubting Thomas. So it's highly likely that Philip, Bartholomew, and Thomas were also fishermen. If that's true, then that means that more than half of the 12 were fishermen. Philip, the apostle, shouldn't be confused with Philip the deacon who led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in Acts chapter 8. Different Philips. By most accounts, Philip was put to death by stoning. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, not much is said about him in scripture. His calling is found in John chapter 1, verses 43 to 51, and there's no reliable record of how he died. One tradition says that he was tied up in a sack and cast into the sea. Another tradition says that he was crucified. By all accounts, he was martyred like all the apostles except John. Matthew, also known as Levi, was a former tax collector. And tax collectors were highly resented and highly hated. He was the worst of the worst. No right-minded Jewish person would ever choose to be a tax collector. To be a tax collector would be to sell out on your own people and your own country. They were banned from the synagogue and forbidden to sacrifice and worship in the temple. They were on the same level socially as harlots. And Matthew was a traitor to his own nation. He was despised because he worked for Rome. He took money from the people of Israel to fill his own pockets and to feed the Romans. So Matthew, he stands as a reminder that the Lord often chooses the most despicable people, redeems them, gives them a new heart, and then uses them in remarkable ways. Tradition says he ministered to the Jews both in Israel and abroad for many years be before being martyred for his faith. The earliest traditions indicate that he, Matthew, or yeah, Matthew was burned at the stake. Next we have Thomas, doubting Thomas. If you remember, Thomas wouldn't believe unless he saw the marks of the nails in Jesus's hands and unless he could place his finger into the mark of the nails and unless he could place his hand into his side. Thomas said, unless he could do those things, he would never believe. But let's not be too hard on Thomas because we also need to remember that all the other apostles also didn't believe in the resurrection until they saw Jesus. But Thomas would come to believe and make one of the most important statements in scripture in John 20, 28. My Lord and my God. The strongest traditions say that Thomas was martyred for his faith by being run through with a spear. Moving lastly to group three, headed by James, the son of Alphaeus. Practically, all we know about James is that he was the son of Alphaeus. And accounts of his death differ. Some say he was stoned, others say he was beaten to death. Still others say he was crucified like his Lord. Thaddeus, also known as Judas, the son of James, also known as Lebius. Very little is known about him. Tradition says that he was clubbed to death for his faith. Simon the Zealot is next. Simon comes from the opposite end of the political spectrum from Matthew. At one point in his life, Simon probably would have gladly killed Matthew because he was a tax collector. And the Zealots were a political party. They were a feared outlaw group. They hated the Romans and their goal was to overthrow the Roman occupation. 
and they advance their agenda primarily through terrorism and acts of violence. They were what we would call extremists or militant and violent outlaws. They believed only God himself had the right to rule over the Jews. And therefore, they believed they were doing God's work by assassinating Roman soldiers, political leaders, and anyone else who opposed them. It's said of them that they were red-hot patriots ready to die in an instant for what they believed in. Story has it that they would carry curved daggers in the folds of their robes. They would sneak up behind Roman soldiers and politicians and stab them in the back between the ribs, expertly piercing the heart. They were relentless. There's no reliable record of what happened to Simon the Zealot, but all accounts say he was killed for preaching the gospel. Lastly, we have Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Judas was, was one who was with Jesus day in and day out, but he never laid hold of the truth by faith. He was never transformed like the rest of them. He was near Christ, and he associated with Christ, but never truly knew Christ. In other words, he gave his life to follow Christ, but never truly gave his heart to Christ. And according to Matthew 27, 3 to 5, Judas Iscariot hung himself. So question, why did Jesus choose Judas? Why not choose someone else if he knew what Jesus would do? Jesus knowingly chose Judas. In John 6, verses 70 and 71, we're told, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus knew all along that Judas would betray him. In fact, it was all a part of God's plan. So his selection of Judas wasn't a mistake or a blunder. Rather, it was a deliberate choice to help him fulfill his task. Judas was chosen not for redemption, but for his role of betrayal that was ordained before the foundation of the world and even prophesied in the Old Testament. And we have to keep in mind that Judas wasn't coerced into doing what he did. He acted freely without external compulsion. He was responsible for his own actions. John MacArthur said, Judas did what he did willingly, without any coercion. Satan could not force him to betray Jesus, but Satan, through some means, suggested the plot, tempted Judas to do this thing, and planted the very seed of treachery in his heart. Judas's heart was so hostile to the truth and so filled with evil that Judas became a willing instrument of Satan himself. And Judas ended up selling his soul for 30 pieces of silver. So 12 unremarkable men, one matchless God, seven of them fishermen, one tax collector and a zealot who would have hated each other had it, had it not been that Christ called both of them to the same group. What qualified these men? It wasn't any intrinsic ability or talent that they had. The truth is there aren't any intrinsically qualified people. God himself must save sinners, sanctify them, and then transform them from unqualified into instruments he can use. 12 unremarkable men accomplished remarkable things because of their relationship to the matchless God. It wasn't their greatness that led to the expanding of Christianity in the first century, but the supreme greatness of Jesus Christ and his power displayed through them. And if God could use them, he can and will use you as he empowers you by his spirit.
to be kingdom messengers. So the list begins with Peter, who denied Christ three times, and ends with Judas, who sells out Jesus for coins. These 12 men were common, ordinary, not an all-star team, not Navy SEALs. And by selecting these 12 men, Jesus was sending a message to the leaders of Israel. By selecting a group of unimpressive men, none of whom came from religious establishment, Jesus was rebuking their entire system. And the 12 were far from perfect. In fact, the only thing they have in common is their imperfections and they're being ordinary and they're being called and commissioned by Jesus Christ. Jesus used these 12 men to establish his church. They were committed to the end, all losing their lives for Christ. So through his power and authority working through them, the gospel has gone forth, churches have been founded, and here we are today, a couple of thousand years later, carrying on the same mission, continuing the task started by the apostles. And, now, and we know we don't have the same authority as them, but we are all ambassadors of Christ. Praise the Lord for 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So from our standpoint, the 12 were nothing special. But from God's standpoint, the 12 were the perfect choice. Weak, imperfect instruments through whom his, God's power would be gloriously displayed. God uses ordinary people to accomplish his great purposes to underscore his sovereign power. God gets all the glory working through weak vessels for taking normal, ordinary people and using them as instruments in his hand, hands to reach the world. Spend time with Christ. It's not who you are, it's who you've been with and who you know. Everything flows out of this relationship with him. And don't underestimate what communion with Christ can bring about in your lives. Everything else can stumble, falter, and fail. But if you have relationship with Christ, you have it all. You have everything. Be much with Christ, and you will impact the world. Let's pray.